Uh, Colossians 2, 1 through 15, if you all could turn to Colossians 2, 1 through 15, and then stand with me for the reading of the word. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Um, my name is, is Joe Mueller. Uh, I'm one of the, the five elders uh, who, who serve here. Um, and it's my, my honor today to get to, to speak to us from God's Word. Um, as we continue our, our vision series this morning, we're in Colossians 2, which was our reading. Uh, it's page 638 in the, the Bibles that are in the, the backs of the chairs. And uh, in Colossians this morning, we are picking up in the middle of Paul's introduction to the church at Colossae and his rhapsody on the person of Christ. And to be clear, Christ is central. He is the main thing, the big thing, the most important idea in Paul's argument in this letter. Christ is mentioned no fewer than than 85 times in the four chapters of the book of Colossians. Um, that, that's by my accounting. And two-thirds of these mentions occur in the first two chapters. So that's 67 times, something like that, that, that Christ is, is mentioned uh, in the first two chapters. Paul is pinning everything he is saying to the church in that city on the person of Jesus as one might expect a Christian to do, right? We, we have to pin everything on Christ. Christ is, after all, as Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says, the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And it is my hope this morning that as we, as we look at baptism, that we too would pin everything on the Jesus that our text reveals. As we examine Colossians, it's my prayer that our hearts would see Jesus, especially as he presents himself to us in the baptism that's described in Colossians 2, 8 through 15. And, and I want us to see how that shapes not only our gathering together as God's people, as God's chosen race, God's royal priesthood, God's holy nation, a people for his own possession, but also how it helps inform how we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So would you join with me in prayer? High King of Heaven, we, we pray that you would deal bountifully with us this morning, your servants, that we may live and that we may keep your word. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. We are sojourners on the earth. Hide not your commandments from us. Let our souls be consumed with longing for your rules all, at all times. We know that you rebuke the insolent and the accursed ones who wander from your commandments. So, so take away from us scorn and contempt and let us keep all of your testimonies. Even if the rich and powerful should seek our destruction, grant to us, your servants, sweet meditations on your statutes. For your testimonies are our delight. They are our counselors. And you, Jesus, are our only hope. Be with us today. Amen. So in, in Colossians, it would appear uh, from the text of Colossians that Paul's aim in writing to the church at Colossae is to encourage them. He wants to encourage them. Paul begins his letter like this. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Right, so him and his pals, they're writing to the church there. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. This is pretty standard for Paul. And then, then he starts this way. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Um, it is a great encouragement to know that people are praying for you, right? Uh, it, it's a very encouraging. And so the, the prayers of Paul's and his associates demonstrate to the church that Paul loves them. He cares for them. And he is aiming for their benefit. That's what Paul's intention is. And, and again, in, in verse 9, he says, And so... From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul, someone uh, likely who had never been to the city at Colossae, but heard about the church there from Epaphras, his, his buddy, he's genuinely concerned for the health of the church. Imagine for a second, uh, someone whom you've never met, but you've heard of, right? So they've got to be some sort of famous, right? Because you've heard of them, but you've never met them, um, 
you know they're devoted to Jesus, you know they follow Jesus, you know that they, they, um, they're doing kingdom work in the world, and then they reach out to you, and they say, I have, since I heard you were a Christian, I haven't stopped praying for you. I love you that much. I want you to grow in Christ. I want you to, to, to do what he's commanded you to do. I, I want you to, to be effective in ministry. And then they say something like Paul does in Colossians 1, 9 through 12. He, he wants them to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I would feel really encouraged to know that someone I didn't even know loved me enough to pray for me all the time. Right? That, that's, that's amazing. Um, what an encouragement, what, what uh, devotion Paul has to the church there. And, and he's communicating that to them in the letter. He wants them to be encouraged. Then he, he goes on to say that uh, he has a great struggle for them in, in chapter 2, verse 1. I, have a, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face. And he wants this. He wants their hearts to be encouraged from verse 2. He wants them to be knit together in love. Who doesn't want to be encouraged? Who doesn't want to be knit together in love? He wants them to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say that this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. It is clear Paul wants to bless and he wants to encourage the church in Colossae by pointing them to Christ. He wants them built up in Christ. He wants them uh, in this, he is with them, right? He is, he is near them in the spirit of Christ, even though if great distances separate his personal body from their corporate body. He's probably in prison in Rome writing to this church in, in, in Asia Minor in Turkey. And he, and he wants them uh, to know how much he cares for them. Paul's aim is to encourage the church. But not just encourage. In, in verse 2-4, right, he, he, he also uh, reveals another intent that he has in writing to them. Uh, if you look at 2-4, it says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible Arguments, And this is the, the next idea in our, our first point, is that Paul is writing to protect the church. He wants to encourage them, and he wants to protect them. There isn't much to say about being deluded. Nobody wants to be deluded, right? No one wants to be tricked into believing something false. It's universally agreed that believing things that are not true is something we want to avoid. No one seeks out falsehoods to believe. And Paul wants to protect the church there. And so Paul is writing to the church, uh, aiming both to encourage and to protect from believing something not true. He wants to both build them up into their head Christ and to save them from being deluded from, from plausible arguments. To use his own words, he wants the church to, as, as y'all, right, received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. 
rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as y'all were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Right? He's using the plural you, which in the South is y'all, right? Uh, not what I grew up with. Um, and so what is he, right, th- this, th- this um, plausible argument, what is it leading toward? What, what is he trying to encourage and protect them? Verse 8 introduces us to, to this thing that he's trying to protect them from, right? See to it in 2.8 that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Uh, take captive. This is, this is warlike imagery. Take captive. Um, a captive, right, in, in ancient war, you would come in, you would fight the army, and then when the army fled, you would go and you would take all the people. Like, that's, that's the way that it worked. Um, and a captive is someone who has taken over completely as a result of conquest. Now, uh, it's important to note here that Paul is not saying don't be taken captive. That's not his intent. Instead, he is saying don't be taken captive by mere human philosophy and the traditions of men and the elemental spirits or the demonic forces of the world. Instead, he is saying be taken captive according to Christ, right? Don't be taken captive according to these things. Rather, be taken captive according to Christ, that Christ have complete control of your life. Enter into Christ's kingdom. The military language is continued in, in verse 15 in our text, 2.15, where the concept of the Roman triumph is, is evoked by Paul. Christ, uh, speaking of Christ's crucifixion at Golgotha, Paul writes, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, 2.15 reads, by triumphing over them. Um, I took Latin in college a little bit, and the Roman triumph is an awesome parade. That's basically what it is. It's an awesome parade. Um, Simply put, right, it's a military parade where an enemy is driven before uh, the Roman general and his victorious army through the streets, and the Roman citizens, they get to cheer and rejoice that victory has come to their citizens, It was both a political and religious event, celebrating the victory of Rome over its enemies and establishing the empire and its deities as supreme in the life of the people recently brought into the kingdom. It was a Roman holiday, right? It was great. It was great to have a triumph. And what what Paul is saying, right, is that Jesus on the cross is driving his enemies before him. And that Jesus on the cross has his people behind him and he is carrying them into victory so Paul is saying don't be captive to the defeated gods of the world and be driven before Christ in triumph instead follow behind him and have him be your general your lord your master be his new subject or as Colossians 1 13 through 14 puts it be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So again, Paul's aim here is to encourage or build up into Christ and, and to protect the church at Colossae. So, so verse 6, right, uh, 2, 6 says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. And the warning from verse 2-8 is directly addressing uh, an issue that's given shape outside of our, uh, what we read today, and that's in 
16 through 3, 4. And, and succinctly put, the error appears to be the addition of some of the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic Covenant to faith in Christ. That seems to be the, the error. The false teachers were coming in and, and potentially saying things like, no, you must celebrate Passover if you want to follow Christ. And, and you must not handle the, the products of the Gentiles. You can't trade with Gentiles. And nor can you eat the food of the Gentiles like pork or shellfish. Nor can you uh, any longer touch your Gentile neighbors. You can't have fellowship with them. You can't break bread with them. It is forbidden. And you must observe this if you want to be saved. You must observe this if you want to be saved. We, we, we see this, hints of this, right, in verse 21, where, where Paul kind of, uh, you know, quotes some uh, Old Testament passages with do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. I see it also in, in verse 16, talking about new moons and Sabbaths. And so to be, to be very, very clear here, this is a form of idolatry. It's idolatry. It's where men have taken something and added it on top of or instead of God's plan. That's what idolatry is. They are saying, no longer trust in Christ alone, but instead trust your works. Trust your ability to keep the law. You can be in the kingdom. Others will be kept out. All you need for this is certainty. Or all you need for this certainty is to keep these man-imposed rules. Just, fo just follow my rules. You'll be in, I promise. And so Paul is writing to encourage and protect the people of God from this idolatry, from, from putting anything up with Christ. And he, how does he do this, right? How does he achieve both this encouragement and protection? And the answer, Paul's aim or Paul's tool in his tool belt to protect and to encourage the people of God is by pointing them to the sign of baptism. Right? Paul says loudly with a megaphone. It's not really a megaphone because it's kind of hard to see. But he's saying, remember your baptism. That's what Paul is saying. So let, let's, let's keep going. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition, or according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Um, so if you are a careful reader, you might interject and say something like, wait a second, Pastor Joe, that's not about baptism. Verse 8 isn't about baptism. You said he was going to point to baptism, but uh, what he's doing is he's pointing to the incarnation, right? That's what he's doing in, in verse 8. He's saying, right, that in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And this is exactly what he's saying, <laughs> He is pointing us to the incarnation. He is saying that Jesus is 100% God, and Jesus is 100% man, but he is still just 100% one person, right? He's not 200% person. He's just 100% person, and that is definitely part of the, the answer, but, but let's keep reading. So we have incarnation, and you have been filled in him, verse 10 continues. You have been filled in him who is head of all rule and authority. Um, you have been filled in him is a weird phrase. I don't know what that means in English. Like, what does that mean? And so I, I, I first thought maybe it's something like, you know, a, a cup. You have an empty cup, and to be filled in something, you like, maybe, maybe we are empty and Jesus is something like a faucet. And, and 
we come to the faucet and, and like we get it full of water. So like if we're, if we're sad or lonely or you, you need like a little something extra in your life, you can go to Jesus and you can just get filled up. You can get filled in him. Uh, but this is not the picture that uh, the Bible has for us at all. The, the New American Standard Bible is a little clearer, I think, uh, where it says in verse 10, and in him you have been made complete. You have been made complete. This, this idea of completion uh, is the same word used by writers of the New Testament to talk uh, and convey the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Right? It's something coming to perfection. It's something made whole. It's something brought to its purposed end. And so instead of us being a cup that comes to get filled uh, from Jesus as like a you know, magical faucet that provides all of our needs, we are more like a fish that needs a body of water to live in. That's more what it's like. Fish, fishes aren't meant to live on land, right? They aren't meant to even live in little bowls or little tanks, right? They're meant to live in, in streams and in, and in rivers and in oceans. And Jesus is a great river which flows from the city of God. And we find our home and our life in his waters. That's what, it, that's what it's, it's pointing us to. We are complete in him. And so in the incarnate God-man, Jesus Christ, our life finds life. And still, it doesn't seem like we're talking about baptism yet, right? So far, as my, my kids would say, so far our text then continues by revealing to us more about this, this union that we have with Christ. It says in verse 11, In him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So Paul, Paul makes a shift, I think seemingly out of nowhere. right? He starts talking about circumcision. He introduces sacramental Language using the Old Testament sign of, of circumcision to make the shift. Circumcision uh, was first given to Abraham as a sign of his covenant with God. Circumcision under the law of Moses was performed on all males born in Israel on the eighth day after their birth. Jesus, in keeping the law, was circumcised by human hands in the temple eight days after he was born, according to Luke 2:21 and following. But notice the phrase that, that Paul uses in verse 11. He says, made without hands. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Circumcision made without hands is a spiritual circumcision, right? It's something you can't see. It's something that's happening to your heart. Perhaps the one Moses uh, commends to us in Deuteronomy 10, 16, when he writes, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. This is an Old Testament foreshadowing and, and uh, signifying of the work of the coming Messiah, who, as Ezekiel eleven nineteen put it, will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. But as Paul is writing the, the book of Colossians, the Messiah has come. They're no longer, no longer looking forward to him. He has come, and Jesus is his name. So we no longer need the shadow of physical circumcision, which is why our text includes without hands. 
Verse 11 again, and in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. We're at baptism, guys. Baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul continues the sacramental language into verse 12, showing us that there is a certain bit of symmetry and asymmetry between the Old Testament sign of circumcision and the New Testament sign of baptism. First, the points of similarity or, or symmetry between circumcision and baptism. Right, Both of them were instituted and commanded by God under different administrations of the one covenant of grace. Right, You have circumcision began with Abraham. Baptism begins with Jesus. Mark out the, both of them, they mark out the people of God from the world around them. Uh, and by virtue of this, they represent the entrance into the visible community of God's people. Circumcision marked out the Jews from the world around them. Baptism marked out the church from the world around them. Just as you needed to be circumcised to be part of Israel, you need to be baptized to be part of the visible church. They are both one-time deals, meaning just as circumcision can only be done once, so too baptism can only be done once. You can only be baptized once. They are prerequisites, prerequisites, right, uh, for sharing in the sacred meal. In the Old Testament, this was the celebration of Passover. You were to, to, to kill anyone who celebrated Passover if they were uncircumcised. And in the New Testament, it is uh, the communion with Christ at the table. You have to be baptized in order to come to Christ's table. Just as no uncircumcised male could participate in the Passover, no unbaptized person should participate in the Lord's Supper. And finally, they are both physical signs that point to spiritual realities, right? This is how baptism and circumcision are the same, but they are different from each other, and how are they different? Well, circumcision was, was forward-looking, right? It was anticipating the coming Messiah who would give us all pure hearts and clean hands. Baptism is both backward and forward-looking, on the other hand. It remembers what Christ accomplished on the cross. So it looks back to the cross, but then it looks forward to the fulfillment of his promise and all of our resurrections on the final day. Circumcision was done only in the name of Yahweh. But baptism is now done in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as the fullness of God has been more fully revealed to us in Christ. Circumcision was performed only on eight-day-old male infants and on adult male converts, showing us to hope for a male descendant of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Baptism, on the other hand, is performed on both male and female who believe and repent showing us that we are all in Christ and all belong to him completely. Circumcision points us to a need to be regenerated by the Spirit of God. And baptism points us to the fact that we have been regenerated by the Spirit of God. Paul's sacramental shift in language is the, is the summation of his argument. It is the foundation upon he which, is, uh, which he calls them to remember so to summarize Paul's argument, he says, Be taken captive according to Christ, because Christ is God, completely completing the purpose for which we exist. He completes us. 
And we are so united to him that it can be said that we were buried with him in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And we rose with him on the third day on Easter. And we know we all have this because we have been baptized. What encouragement and protection our baptism affords us. What encouragement and protection. We know that we are united with Christ because we can look back to the sign, to the seal, to the promise that he made to us in baptism. The sure thing, we know we can feel water. We can feel it cover our face. We can, we can feel the wetness on our skin. But none of us saw Jesus rise from the dead. None of us, um, maybe none of us, saw a tongue of fire descend on our forehead and the Spirit indwell us with rushing wind, right? None, none of us experienced those things. And yet, as surely as those things happened and Jesus rose from the dead, we certainly know them because we have been covered with the waters of baptism. We know it for a fact. We can be sure of it, and we can be sure that it counts for us. The, the Heidelberg Catechism and Orthodox Catechism in question 69 says this, how does holy baptism remind and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally? How does baptism remind and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally? In this way, it answers, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it promised that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly the blood of his spirit his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity. That is all my sins. To be clear, right? Mere washing with water does not and cannot save you. Mere washing with water does not and cannot save you. Only Christ's blood and spirit can wash us clean. But how often do we lose track of the spiritual reality of Christ's work? How often do our own sins seem to testify against us and condemn us? How often do we feel like God is far off and not near, or that his mercies might not be for me? But Jesus did not leave us without a pledge of his promise. We have our baptism to remember. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trans trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So we're in our, our third point here, the message of baptism. And this is the message of baptism. When this church, when Remedy Church, takes a candidate for baptism and places them under the water, this is to signify to the, the candidate and to us, right, the church gathered, and to the watching world that this person has shared in the death of Jesus that because of the work of Christ in their life, that is evidenced by their profession of faith in him and their repentance from sins, they have entered into an unbreakable union with Christ. That as Christ was nailed to the cross, 
all of their sins, not in part, but the whole, were also nailed to that tree in the body of Christ. And now they bear their sins no more. The death that Christ died on the cross at Calvary is this person's death. And as we plunge them into the waters and it covers over their head, we are proclaiming over them that the body of sin and death died with Christ. And as the water touches their skin and and softens and removes dirt from their bodies, we are testifying to them and to each other and to the whole world that the blood of Christ cleanses them from all unrighteousness. And as we lift them from the waters, we proclaim over them the promises of Christ that they too rose with him on the third day. And that even now they taste in their bodies the resurrection of Jesus in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And in the future, as Colossians 3, 4 puts it, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Do you believe this? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The old hymn reminds us that the love of Christ is rich and it's free, fixed on his own eternally. Love has redeemed his sheep with blood and love will bring them safe to God. Love calls them all from death to life and love will finish all their strife. Love cannot from its post withdraw, nor death, nor hell, nor sin, nor law can turn the surety's heart away. He'll love his own till endless day. And would you accept his love this morning? Would you believe in his name? We're concluding with, with this. There are the most important thing you can do to respond to the message of baptism, the most important thing that you can hear today and then do, the most important thing you can do is to pin everything you have upon Jesus. Place your faith in him. Trust him with your life. Call upon his name to be saved. And if you've never called upon the Lord to be saved before, repent and believe the gospel, and be baptized, as Peter tells us in Acts 2.38. For, for those of us who have responded to Christ's love by calling upon his name, who have repented of our sins and entered into his visible body through baptism, as you continue to respond to him in faith, the fruits of the Spirit will begin to manifest in your life. They will. Your life, with starts and stops, with bumps and bruises, Slowly, yet surely, inevitably, you will begin to look like this. Just flip over to Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Paul, Paul says this, he says, Put on then as Christ's chosen, holy, beloved, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, 
as the Lord has forgiven you, so also, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. My encouragement to all of us this week is to take Colossians 3, 12 through 17 and meditate on it. Think about the type of life lived in thanksgiving to God and examine your own life in light of the example we have in Christ. Where do you see gaps in your character or behavior? Offer them up to God in prayer. Offer them up. Confess them to your brothers and sisters in Christ that they might pray for you and encourage you like Paul encouraged the church in Colossae and that they may spurn you on to love and good deeds because that's what we're good for, right? We're good for encouraging each other, building each other up, supporting each other. And as you do it all, remember the encouragement, comfort, and protection of your baptism. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your promise. Thank you that you have made your promises sure to us, that you have set up signs for us, these, these, um, these things that help us see spiritual realities in, in physical form. Thank you for the ordinance of baptism. Thank you for what it teaches us about Jesus. Thank you for what it proclaims to our hearts. Thank you for the protection that it gives us when, when, when we're lost when we struggle, when we despair. Thank you for the proof that it is that you will always be with us. That there are, there are truer things about us than our current struggle. That there is power in the blood of Jesus. And that no purpose of yours will ever be thwarted. And we know this with certainty with confidence because we have received you in baptism and you have done a work in our hearts that we haven't seen with our with our eyes you have you have washed us with your blood you have united us with your spirit you have filled us with the holy spirit you have sealed us in this spiritual way and we know it's true because we've seen it in baptism so lord thank you for the this gift Remind us this week of our baptism. Remind, it to, uh, remind us of it all the time. That we may trust in you. That we may hope in you. That we may pin our whole existence on Jesus. Do this for us, we pray. Amen.